Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 13, Trade and Contact. The earliest uh, connections, as we've said before, about trade across the English Channel happened between what would then become Gaulish France and the area where the uh, Belgae were and the southeastern and northern parts of what we now call England. They trade that was made back then was in things like bronze axes and that type of thing, as well as items for ritualization. However, as time goes on and we get past the Caesarian invasions, we actually have what we see as a major change in the way trade works. Uh, exclusivity, of course, for the Americans has now ended, and now trade is being done across the edges of northern France and Belgium into England and conversely out of England. And in fact, the southeast coast of England suddenly gains a huge advantage and benefit because it is so isolated or because it is the center of trade between these two groups. And now with the Romans involved, because of course now Gaul has been settled and the idea of Gaul as a province creates a Roman connection wherein these tribes, which are nominally supposedly declaring fealty to the Romans, now have an area and aspect of trade. However, we do know that there is some evidence of trade that goes on before even those. There's some ideas that there was some trade between Britain and Spain and Ireland and Spain at one point. Uh, there is an argument that even the Phoenicians may have got up this far. Evidence is sparse. There's been one coin apparently found, but no real proof outside of that. But you would understand that as the Bronze and, and Iron Age continued and the need for metal and for gems and for gold and all these things increased and there was less and less of it obviously easily found, you would then have a need to go farther afield and eventually you would end up in Britain. It's not that difficult to get to Britain from Europe. It's just a case of crossing you know, the English Channel, which, as we said before, can be kind of iffy sometimes. Now, Strabo says that there was trade uh, amongst the British and the Romans, and what he described as being the trade at the time was typically from Britain. They gained grain, cattle, gold, silver, iron, leather hides, slaves, that's a big one, and dogs, which went to Europe. Now, the trade back were things like ivory chains, necklaces, gems like amber, uh, glassware, and other vessels. And the one thing they don't really talk about, but is definitely a big part of that, is amphorae, which would have contained things like uh, olive oil or wine, which would have become more and more used in trade. Uh, so one of the parts of Romanization that happens as Gaul becomes less of a, a frontier land and more of a province 
is that the amount of slaves you get from that land now suddenly ceases. In Rome, where the use of slaves is much higher, much more in demand, it, slaves are used for almost everything in Rome. And anytime there's a dirty or terrible job that nobody wants to do, a slave has issued it. And in this case, what ends up happening is that they start looking to Britain to capture more slaves. And in fact, there becomes a bit of a cottage industry, which a lot of archaeologists and historians believe this may be the case, that there was uh, much like what happened in, in the uh, Enlightenment period in, in Africa. You have tribes that were in good shape with Rome, the ones that Julius Caesar had settled and, and created an allegiance with in the southeast would then use their ability to war with others to capture more slaves, or in some cases to just basically go in and raid towns, communities, and that in the western and northern reaches of England and Wales, and take from them slaves that they would then sell in the Roman markets. In fact, there is some suspicion that uh, British uh, slaves were actually worth more than some others because of their exotic nature and so they would have been in more demand because they would look different from the normal slaves who would be coming from, say, other parts of the Mediterranean or from the Middle East. So because of that, they became kind of valued and prized. So that trade would have probably continued to happen long after it probably should have. And likely it helped to fund what was then the rise of the elite class in Southeast Britain. We actually see quite a large increase in the elites in that era. And I'm sure that if you were a tribe living in northern Britain and you saw these tribes in southern Britain suddenly getting so wealthy off their trade with Rome, it must have sent concerns through you. You know, they're, they're starting to use things like coins, something that the Rome, that the British had never done before. Well, they start to mint them now and they start issuing them. There's items that have never been seen in Britain before, like wine and, as I said, olive oil and things of that nature. And so all of a sudden you have this massive increase to the wealth and into the monetary value of what is going on. And so what would happen is, is you'd have market towns rising up. And suddenly Britain, southeastern Britain specifically, becomes a lot more Roman looking and a lot more Roman cultured. And of course, this happens to also be the area where you can grow a heck of a lot more than most of the rest of the country. And even in that time period, it was sort of the breadbasket of Britain. So you combine that in and all of a sudden these these farmers and and ranchers and all that suddenly become more wealthy. Suddenly they create market towns to sell their goods. You have these massive import markets that are bringing stuff in. And much like anywhere else in the world in these kind of circumstances, those towns become very wealthy and rich. And again, as I said, it probably led to a lot of jealousy, a lot of suspicion, a lot of concern, and maybe just maybe a thought that, hey, we need to get in on this as well from some of the other tribes in the area. Uh, certainly the two tribes in southeast Britain, the Atrebates and the Kentucky, they probably benefited quite a bit from having that advantage and thus for tribes like the uh, like the northern um, Catavones and Triavantes that would have been a bit of a concern and you can imagine other Welsh tribes in fact not being very happy with basically being the slave trade tribes which are being farmed out and probably not happy with being raided and not happy with seeing other tribes gaining wealth and having value 
in fact, in some respects, you can actually see that in this era, there's a big divide between the River Thames, because anybody sort of south of and, and east of the River Thames are the ones making all the money and making all the uh, cultural increases because of their their connections to Rome and to the uh, Gallic provinces. And yet in the West, you have, and North, you have a different set of people who are maintaining the old traditions, probably very much like the old Iron Age Britons were prior to Julius Caesar's arrival across the island. And for them, you know, these people would be seen quite differently and probably not very happy. And who knows what they told themselves about this at this point, because of course we don't have records of it. But certainly there would have to be some sense of, you know, either either you're going to come down on one way or the other. One is you're going to say, well, we want some of that and we need to get some of that. Or two, we need to stamp it out because, of course, that's the other reaction, right? No, they're being decadent and look at all these naughty things they're doing and we need to put an end to it because good British people don't do this kind of thing. So you probably likely have both of those kind of ideas going on. And I think there's a tendency to look at it as from that angle. I think the other interesting thing is you see in the southeast corner uh, what I would call the wine area. Suddenly uh, these people are drinking wine, they're eating a lot more pork, they're they're looking and acting probably a lot more Roman. And yet in the northeast or northwest and the west areas they're still drinking beer. They still like like your good old Romano or Celtic Britain. And certainly they would not act the same and not have the same cultural connections. And in fact, there is one way we can kind of look at that and see where this connection has changed the British. From this period of the invasion of Julius Caesar to the point where uh, Claudius comes in some 90 years later, there is a tendency by the southeastern Britons, when they get into conflicts amongst each other or amongst other Britons, they will actually run to Rome for either help or protection. And in some ways, that was something that was never done before. And as well, the groups of, of elite and, and nobility that was captured by Julius Caesar come back to Britain, likely bringing a lot of this culture, bringing a lot of these ideas with them, as we said last week. And so this would also influence the way trade and the way commerce happens. And I mean, if you... Like, think about it from the aspect of, say you're a farm person whose only experience is going to a small village or a small town, and you've spent 20 years of your life like that, and then you move to, say, New York, or Los Angeles, or Chicago, or Toronto, or London, suddenly your experience is very, very different. And in fact, your whole life feels very different. And for some people, they would react badly to that. They'd want to go back to their old way of life. And people do. Conversely, there are other people that come into that new urban environment and want it and want it all the time and want to bring it back to their home and bring that whole cultural experience back into their local community. So if you think about it from the aspect of people coming back who've seen Rome, have experienced what a Roman culture is like, which is very different than what cultures were like in Britain and very different from most of the rest of Europe and the Middle East. So for them, for some of those people, they would be repulsed and come back and say, we got to go back, you know, our ways are best. Romans are nuts and evil. Let's stick to the old ways. Other people will come back and say, 
oh my gosh, look at all the things I got. Look at all the stuff I could do. Look at all this bling I'm wearing, to use a modern term, you know, that I picked up. Oh, and I went into the market and I found this stuff called wine. I've never had this before. It's incredible. There's all of these things that suddenly you're introduced to. There's underfloor heating. There's aqueducts. There's functional toilets of a fashion. All of these items don't exist in Britain at this point. So it would have blown some of these people away. And they come back and, you know, you're the local son of the local tribal leader. Maybe you're not as excited about coming back to Britain and being another local tribal leader. Maybe you're sitting there going, boy, do I really want to live in some little podunk hill fort or do I want to live in Rome? Some people would have stayed, obviously. In other cases, they would go, heck, I want to go back and I want to go back to my hill fort because it's safe there and I understand how it works and it's not crazy, it's not stupid, it's not got a bunch of weird religious freaks, it's you know, my people. So I want to go back. And then there will be other people that go, I want to bring Rome to Britain. And I want my hill fort to start looking like these Roman towns I've seen. Because if I can start looking like a civitus, I can benefit from it. So you have all these different reactions that have happened. And so we start to see, as I said, a Romanizing of the Southeast. And I'm sure that creates conflict with the rest of Britain. It definitely will into the Claudian invasion. Because of course, these Britons aren't influence the same way they haven't been as culturally indoctrinated they've really only seen the negative side of roman life because of course the romans and conversely their their the romano cultural british are kind of pushing it on them through taking slaves through creating situations where they aren't allowed to practice their lifestyle in the way they wanted to or did before and as happens in any circumstance, you'll have blowback on that, and people will not want that to happen. So I think while trade opens up a massive world for the British at this point, and you suddenly see a massive difference in the way the British live in the southeast, in the other parts of Britain, there is a, the Iron Age continues without interruption, and other than the the problems with Rome and with their British neighbors, they've largely maintained their old traditions, their old style of living and their old way of life. And the influences of that would still overcome anything else they were doing. But as the, as I said, as they would see these Romano neighbors, it must have irked them. And it would definitely bring a lot of concern. You sort of end up with what amounts to a wine zone and a beer zone. And I'm sure they didn't mingle great or didn't mingle well all the time. And as these tribes would begin to conflict and create more and more problems for one another, one of the developments out of that is that the what we find is that the... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? 
Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Uh Romano-culturally influenced British would then turn to their Roman allies for help. And the Romans have always looked at Britain, I think, since the Julian invasion and thought, boy, you know, might be kind of nice to own that. There's a lot of cool stuff there. Maybe we want to take that. Maybe we don't. And I think for the most part, what probably kept them from invading, uh, I think, was twofold. One, you had in Augustus a leader who wasn't trying to create invasion. He spent most of his early life trying to regain control over the rest of what would then become his empire and conflicting with Mark Antony and all of the rest of them. And so by the time he got done with all that fighting, the last thing he wanted to do was start opening up more uh, battles and more conflict and more settlement. He seemed to be more happy to do things by negotiation and by cultural influence, uh, as we would see in later times where he, rather than fighting the Parthians over the captured eagles of Crassus that we mentioned last time, he actually negotiates to get them back. And that scene is so good and so important that they actually throw him a triumph for it, which was never done. That was only done for military success. Conversely, Tiberius, the next emperor, is completely unenamored with the idea of taking an invasion somewhere else he didn't want anything to do with the military aspects of rome in some ways he's he had such a crazy lifestyle leading up to that that his interest in expanding the empire is just not there and it's not until we get claudius the sort of uh stepped backwards into emperor that we end up getting this push to go after Britain. And I think at the end of the day, it was probably there with a lot of the military. I'm sure the military, after Caesar, wanted to go and take Britain. Once you've settled Gaul, you need to start acquiring more land and more places to settle your troops and to live for 20 years or 40 years or 60 years without doing that would have made a problem for a militarized region. And the one thing that we can say about the Romans is that they were militarized, and a lot of their success was about their militarization. So Britain looks like the kind of target you want. 
And just a cultural connection isn't enough. You want to take as much as you can because you want to use it how you want. You don't want to be stuck with trading with someone. And I think at the end of the day, that's where a lot of the logic is, is that, you know, it's a rich area. I mean, look at the amount of stuff they're trading. Look at how rich that the areas were getting. I mean, the Southeast Britain is covered with elites at this point. And this just sort of happens over 90 years. This is not something that's happened over a long period of time. There isn't loads of evidence in, in the Iron Age prior to Julius that there was tons and tons of elites out there. In fact, as we mentioned before, the Iron Age kind of got rid of the elite class for a while. So all of a sudden, with this wealth and with this area that just seems so ripe for the plucking, in fact, uh, Augustus had set up the Consilium Cocidorcidae Intra Terminos Imperii. In other words, a general doctrine which said that the empire could only be so big. And that belief is what led a lot of people to think that there was no need to invade Britain. Uh, Strabo, after the death of Augustus, in fact, stated that for the Romans, Britain was basically Roman enough. And that there was no need to settle the island anymore because they'd already basically won the argument. The, in other words, to use a term from more modern times, it was capitalist enough that we didn't need to actually go in there because they had enough of what we had that we gain all the advantages without having to station men there, put administration there, deal with the problems there. It was Roman in everything but name only, so why bother? And it isn't until Claudius that that starts to change and he gets a reason for it. At the end of the day, there just wasn't really the leadership to try and take Britain. But once you have either the military or the the leadership that want to take it, and if you have Claudius, who's considered to be both cagey and some, some say he's cagey, some say he was controlled, and it's really hard to tell, even from the writings that we have, uh, Claudius changes all this and and with him come the legions and with the legions come settlement and with settlement you leads to conflict leads to more conflict leads to more settlement leads to more romanization till we get to the point where wales is suddenly affected and the welsh will have to fight out with the romans and try and beat them and the two main tribes that do that as i mentioned before the salaries and the ordevise and to a lesser extent the uh Demonente, they will all fight the Romans to try and keep them out of Wales to various points of success and failure, whereas others will negotiate and make peace with them early on and become a part of the Roman cultural standpoint. And it's interesting to kind of see that where areas that weren't necessarily going to be key to Roman wealth or Roman elites, so in other words, areas that didn't have farmlands, areas that had obvious points where they were going to be enslaved because, you know, you weren't going to create massive Roman settlements in, in central and northern parts of Wales. There just isn't the territory or the agriculture to make it easy. And so these people and these groups would not have that same advantage and would fight tooth and nail to avoid the Roman entrance. Whereas in the southwest, in the Pembrokeshire area, where there is a lot of farming and agriculture and there's a lot of uh, convenience around that, it had already been sort of a trading center in Wales. Well, it becomes very easily Romanized. 
and so much so that when you look at the map of of Roman roads, there are no Roman roads in the Pembrokeshire area. There are no Roman forts. And the reason why there's no Roman roads is not because the Romans didn't trade there or didn't settle there or didn't send, you know, influence there. It was because there was no need for troops there. And that was the primary reason for building a Roman road. You build Roman roads to try and access areas that are hard to get to. You want to shift troops fast. That's how you do it, especially troops that are generally on foot, which is what the Roman military was based around. There was foot troops and then you had cavalry and the cavalry was not as big as the foot troops. And so you had to transport those troops over long and far and diverse places. You needed some way to do it fast and with, you know, uh, a way that was kind of easy to walk. So obviously that developed into roads. And and as you look across Wales, it is crisscrossed with Roman roads because of that problem. And it's also crisscrossed by Roman forts for similar reasons. And yet in the Pembrokeshire area, in that area down in the southwest, there are none of that. And that shows that likely they accommodated very quickly Whereas the northern areas, which would have suffered under slavery, which would have suffered under, you know, being a bit too British for the Romans, um, they'll face the Romans and try and fight them tooth and nail. And they will do exactly that. And they will be a headache for the Romans pretty much for the first hundred years of the Roman existence in Britain. And uh, it's, it's an interesting thing to look at and to the point where the Romans had to settle a legion there for the majority of their stay just to keep the Welsh in line. <laughs> so there's a lot of interesting aspects. We're going to get more into Roman Britain as we go. And you will see for sure a big change in the way Britain acts and reacts. And especially as these conflicts start to become more and more their back door instead of being something that happened somewhere else you heard about. At this point, what you end up with is you end up with a place which is either culturally enamored with the Romans and thus becomes a believer in Rome or hostile to Rome and thus becomes a place where exiles trying to escape Roman influence or people who are fighting the Romans and lost in battles in Gaul and, and the Belgae area end up coming over to Britain to escape them. And we'll see more and more of that as time goes on. And in fact, some of the big battles will be led by generals from other tribes who then influence their fellow tribe members to, to revolt. Boudicca's revolt may have started with one tribe, but it involves a bunch of them after the fact. And so there's a lot of this interrelationship and alliances that suddenly will come into place. And Britain will be a difficult nut to crack. It won't completely be settled because of that. Anyway, until next time, we'll see you all later. Thank you so much for following and please give us a rating and a review on iTunes. We appreciate it. And it and on Stitcher as those help us by helping others find us. And once again, thanks. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. What's up, guys? We just launched a Patreon to help us bring in some money for upgrades and advertising. There's a lot of cool tiers on there that you should check out, and you can get all the extra content for just $5 a month. Check it out at patreon.com slash distractionsmedia. 
Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.